This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These were the words of our Lord that he gave to the disciples, which apply by extension to each of us. And with these words, Jesus made very clear that the suffering of persecution, that is, suffering because of your faith, because of your faith in Christ, is to be expected. The implication would be that the more a believer's speech or manner of life, uh, worldview, resembles that of Jesus, our Master, the light of the world, then the more the darkness would react even as it did against Him. To what extent and to what degree that opposition might come, I guess it depends on several things. One of the things, it might depend on just how bright the light is. <laughs> But it would also depend on the cultural context at the time. That is to say, it, would, it depends on the degree to which the Christian worldview informs and is giving shape to the cultural institutions in which we find ourselves at that time. Well, in our country, in this nation, the cultural institutions had for many many years been largely to some degree affected and shaped by a Judeo-Christian worldview, but that is changing rapidly in our experience right now, not only in our country, but in the West. We might say cultural institutions are no longer so much on our side, as it were. <laughs> and we are beginning to, to feel more of that. We live in a more and more a more post-Christian society or culture. I do not live in the workaday world. Uh, I readily admit it. It's been a long time, decades since I went to construction sites and, and operated tractors for my dad. <laughs> uh, I know, though, though that's been a long time for, for me, that, that my, from my interactions with those of you that do and from my reading of publications that closely do follow cultural trends and my encounters with the general public out there, I think really affirm this very thing that I'm saying, that we are moving more and more towards a post-Christian uh, reality in society and it's becoming more and more hostile to our Christian worldview. We have said before, we live in the day what has been called the autonomous self where the individual, every individual, is the Lord, is the master. And your preferences are your convictions. And, and any sort of narrative that defines things for everyone is unacceptable. 
The self is the Lord. And, and in this rapidly changing world, if you've been a Christian for some time, or let's say you grew up in the States, or perhaps you're around my age, or uh, either a bit older or a bit younger, a lot of Christians are feeling more and more like disoriented pilgrims. You know, where did Levi the Beaver go? How did this happen? Well, there's a lot of explanations for how it happened. It's, I'm sure there's not just one trend, but one source. I would offer you someone uh, and something to consider, and that is the writings of a very contemporary Christian thinker, sort of a Francis Schaeffer sort, and his name is Dr. Carl Truman. Uh, he wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I don't immediately suggest you all go out and get that. It's very thick, and it's a deep, slow slog. Most pastors don't want to read through it themselves. <laughs> but Crossway, his publisher knew that was the case, and they said, why don't you simplify? <laughs> why don't we reduce it and be clear? And that's the book I do commend to you if you want to understand what has been happening. And that book is called Strange New World. Subtitle says, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. We may still have a few copies of that. I don't know in the bookstore. I mentioned the first hour. I, I, I like to quote something he says at the conclusion of that reduced book, Strange New World. It's a little bit long, but just bear with me. At, towards the end of the book, he says, For traditional Christians, the narrative of this book is inevitably a somewhat depressing one, as it points both to past transformations in the notion of selfhood that challenge our views at every level and indicates that the world in which we now live is hostile to expression of our beliefs on these matters. He gives an illustration. To object to same-sex marriage, for example, is in the moral register of the day not substantially different from being a racist. And the era when Christians could disagree with the broader convictions of the secular world and yet still find themselves respected, as decent members of society at large, is coming to an end, if indeed it has not ended already. The truth is that the last vestiges of a social imaginary shaped by Christianity are rapidly vanishing, and many of us are even now living as strangers in a strange new world. The revolution in selfhood, particularly as it manifests itself in the various facets of the sexual revolution, is set to exert pressure on the lives of all of us. From kindergarten, education, to workplace policies on pronouns. Christians might still be able to run, so to speak, and avoid some of these things for some period of time, but they cannot hide forever. Sooner or later, every single one of us is likely to be faced with a challenging situation generated by the modern notion of selfhood. And this means that for all of us, the questions of how we should live and what we should do when facing pressure to conform, those questions are gaining in urgency. And I know this is the case, not just because I've read that, but because some of your own, your own testimonies, your own experiences in the job, the workplace, be it in education, or be it in other spheres. 
for the children in the room. That was a lot of things I read. And what it sums up, uh, boys and girls, and what it means is this, is that the world doesn't view people the way God has explained people. And those of us who believe what God says about people will be finding it harder to talk with people. (laughs) That's what it means. We are living, therefore, in a more and more intense time. And I think this is why a deep, slow dive through the book of 1 Peter is going to be very helpful for all of us. Uh, Because uh, Peter is talking to people who definitely felt like strangers, not in a strange new world to them, but still like strangers in the world that they had previously belonged to. Uh, 1 Peter is about suffering. It's about suffering as a pilgrim, as an alien, a stranger, an elect exile, he says, in this world. That is about suffering is made clear all over the place. In verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They were being spoken against. Verse 19 in chapter 2. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There's a suffering that you deserve, he's saying. (laughs) But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this Wow, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore Christ suffered in the flesh because he did. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or ordeal when it comes upon you to test you. There was more suffering ahead for them. When it comes, don't be surprised as though something strange were, were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So it's a book about suffering. It's a book about facing suffering. It's a book that's about going through the furnace. And he tells us, he teaches us how to come out of the furnace better, not bitter. Refined and purified. He tells us and teaches us how to go through the furnace graciously, how to respond to others in the midst of it, how to respond to family, how to respond to government, how to respond to the church members, how to respond to God in the midst of it. If you see chapter 4 and verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And 
Don't stop living correctly. Entrust yourself. So he teaches us this. And underneath all this, what he teaches us also, which is very central to this whole book, is that what sustains you in the furnace, what keeps you faithful and trusting yourself to God, is the living hope of future glory. That inheritance that lies ahead for every believer. The key to that is understanding your identity, not as the world is seeking to redefine it, but your identity in union with Christ, in Christ. Much of this was in the book of Colossians. And what that means when you not only look backward, as we just read, we have been sprinkled with His blood, but as you look forward, as well, look down at verse 13, chapter 1. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace future that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're going to find that this is a book about suffering, and it's also a book that is just uh, besotten with eschatology. What's that mean? That big word just means the, the end, the last things. He will repeatedly point his people to what's on the other side of the furnace uh, that they might endure as they make their way through it. So in light of this, uh, I've given the title to the series, Living Hope for Suffering People. And this morning is really an, just an introduction. We're going to look this morning at what he says there in verse 1. We're going to look at the, the moment, that is the history of what was happening, the man, that is Peter the Apostle, and then the message. What's the heart of what he's going to get at here in this book? So let's start there. Would you, uh, let's start with the moment. What was going on? When was this? Uh, most conservative scholars believe that Peter was in Rome when he wrote this, and the time was about A.D. 63 or 64. Uh, Nero, many of you heard his name, was the emperor. He was the one in power. Uh, but that official imperial, or what we might call state-sponsored persecutions of Christians that we've heard so much about, that had not yet quite begun, but it was just on the horizon, and it's almost as if Peter is already feeling it coming. He feels the, trem the tremors of it uh, nearby. A great fire would destroy about one-third of Rome in uh, July of 64 and many many suspected that Nero was the one who started the fire so that he could rebuild Rome more glorious and more glorious to himself and after that fire in July of, of uh, AD 64 Christians were made the scapegoats for that fire and they were blamed and that's where you hear those accounts that how some of them were covered in pitch and they were burned uh, on a stake and became uh, living torches, human torches to light up uh, his parties. Uh, Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome during that period of intensifying persecution. One of the reasons we believe uh, that this was before that was because this does not seem to have yet happened. Well, obviously because Peter is alive and he writes the letter. Uh, he would say in uh, 
in chapter 5 and verse 13, she who is at Babylon, the church who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen like you, sends you greetings. By that point, Babylon was a key word, sort of, for the Roman Empire, Rome. So this was not quite yet that civil uh, imperial persecution. So what was it? It was still very intense from what we gather. They were being persecuted through social pressure, social ostracism, uh, experiencing discrimination, experiencing slander and malicious talk. Uh, you heard that. They malign you. They speak against you as evildoers. Why? Because what you think is good, they now think is evil. And what you think is evil, they now think is good. For them, it was a transition because they had come out of paganism. For us, it's a transition more and more because the society is becoming more and more post-Christian. And so they were experiencing this slander and uh, their uh, honor was being threatened in the community and jeopardized their livelihood. Some of them um, perhaps had relatives who had already been imprisoned. They essentially no longer fit in and people were letting them know. All this because of what? Because of, first of all, their belief that this Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth was God's Messiah, that he who was crucified on a Roman cross uh, was actually atoning for their sin, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day, that he was declared to be Lord of glory, that he ascended and is at the right hand of God in heaven and is going to return to judge the living and the dead. That was their commitment. That was their belief. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Christos Kurios. Christ is Lord, not Caesar Kurios. And soon they'd begin to be punished directly for that conviction. But by this point, it was also more the fact that believing in Jesus had begun to change their lives. They were living lives impacted by the gospel. And they were walking in what Peter calls holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And he quotes the Old Testament. And so this is really, I know where many of you are today. You're experiencing this, beloved. What I mean is this, is that if you just choose to simply live according to biblical truth on your job, on your campus, wherever it might be, you may start paying more and more dearly for that just because you are seeking to live in accordance with biblical truth. You use the wrong pronoun. You've refused to address a man as a woman. You are already going to pay for that. And that's what they were experiencing, not in the same case, but in the same uh, manner. That is, their lifestyle, their outlook, their way of living was very different than what was surrounding them. You know, one of Peter's favorite words, the Greek word is anastrophe, and that word anastrophe is translated here by the ESV conduct. It means way of life. And uh, you can see it used uh, in, chapter, in chapter 1, uh, verse 15. He who called you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your anastrophe, in all your way of life, in all your conduct, be holy like the one who called you is holy. It's one of Peter's favorite words. He uses it six times in this book, two times in his second letter, and in the entire rest of the New Testament, it's only used five more times. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the 
futile anastrophe, the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. If you look over at uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, keep your anastrophe, keep your conduct, your way of life among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, he's saying, I know the heat is on, you're in the furnace, but as he who called you is holy, let your way of life remain holy. Continue to be holy. Live different. And that is what's happening today. And in some cases, you might not be living any different than you have been, but the world's moving further away, and you're looking weirder and weirder. <laughs> and you may be thinking, we've always done this. We've always believed this. I've always said this. I've always lived according to that principle. But you see, that's no longer seen in any sort of sense as being respectable. Uh, that's a narrative that is unacceptable now. And so you should be beginning to feel that heat, that different lifestyle. And we should be distinct, shouldn't we? We ought to stand out in a world like th that's affected in its thinking and changed so much as it has. And so who were these people? In other words, who, who are they? He refers to them, interesting, look, as elect exiles of the dispersion. Living where? In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are districts uh, in what we call today northern Turkey. All of those were, were districts. So that's where they were living, but who were they? He says, you are elect exiles of the dispersion. And the word behind that is the word diaspora. I think many of you have heard that word before, diaspora. That's a word that Jews, it means to be scattered, and it's the word that Jews used of other Jews who had been scattered away from Palestine, away from the homeland during the Assyrian captivity and during the Babylonian captivity when they were taken away in exile. So Jews who had to leave were called uh, the diaspora, the, the scattered ones. And so that leads some people who study this book to think the recipients of, these letter, of this letter were Jewish Christians. That's because he refers to them as, as, uh, as elect exiles of the diaspora. Now there's no doubt that there were some Jews because he refers to the Old Testament several times. But most conservative New Testament scholars uh, believe that the churches he was writing to in those regions were primarily Gentile churches. That is, they came from a pagan background. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, it's the way he refers to them in different ways. Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's a way of speaking of pagan idolatry. Verse 18, I read it earlier, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, the futile uh, way of life inherited from your fore." Fathers, chapter 2, verse 10, he applies a Old Testament reality to them. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And that's a way of referring to Gentiles who are outside of the covenant being brought into the covenant. Paul uses the same sort of phrase, and Peter and Paul spent a lot of time together. But, you know, probably the verse that really nails it, that these were Gentile Christians who were scattered in that region of the world, is chapter 4, verse 3. If you look there. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want 
to do, implication, that's what you used to do. And what is it? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's where they came from. And he says, you're no longer in that any longer. So these were then, who were these uh, uh, readers, the original recipients? Is These were <clears throat> uh, Gentile, primarily Gentile churches with a few Jews in them, scattered abroad in what we call northern modern Turkey today. But what is really, I think, most interesting about their identity is how Peter applies titles used of Old Testament Israel to these Gentile churches. Uh, like Old Testament Israel, they are chosen. They are the elect ones. Like Old Testament Israel, they are of the diaspora. They're scattered abroad. Like Old Testament Israel, they're exiles. They're sojourning on the way to a promised land. If you look at what he says about them in chapter 2, verse 9, quoting directly from Deuteronomy, applied to Israel, he says, You are a chosen race, like Israel. You are a royal priesthood, like Israel. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, you see. And so what is very interesting and profound here is that he applies these identifying markers, these titles that belong to the Old Testament people of God, to the New Covenant people of God. And in that, he says this very important thing. He emphasizes their new identity in Christ. He says, you, like all the people of God of old, you are elect exiles. You are elect exiles. And so Peter dives immediately right into uh, the importance of their identity. We'll get to that later in the message. So that's the moment. That's the moment. That's what was happening. That's who these people were. Let's look for a few minutes at the man, the author. It begins Peter. Most of you know Peter. You've heard of Peter. Uh, and you're aware of some of his story. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle with a capital A, meaning it's, it's an office that he was holding. The word apostle simply means a, a sent one, a messenger, but he was one of the 12 selected apostles. What it was it to be that kind of apostle? It was to be an emissary, an emissary who speaks with the full authority of the one who sent him. Who sent him? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, you see. So Peter is one of the 12. He holds this very important office, and it's an office that cannot be repeated because it was foundational and unrepeatable. How was it foundational? Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles are the foundation of the church. They're teaching. It's unrepeatable. Why? Because to be one of those apostles, you need to be an eyewitness of Jesus raised from the dead. Not the moment he was raised, but resurrected. And so the office he held was one of a full authority, was foundational and unrepeatable. He was an eyewitness, he says himself in chapter 5 of the sufferings of Christ, but he was also an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. He was part of the inner circle, one of the three, Peter, James, and John, and his name was always first on the list. He was the official, sometimes unofficial, spokesman for the group, right? 
We know Peter in many ways. He was the man who abandoned all his whole fishing business. He left it in order to follow Jesus, whom he thought might be the Messiah. He was the first to confess this. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, you are rock. He gave him the name rock, and he was given the keys to the kingdom. That is to say, he would be the first to preach to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and to the Gentiles, Cornelius. That's Peter, you see. So why should we listen to Peter when we read this book? Well, for all those reasons. Because he has authority. When Peter speaks, he speaks uh, with the voice of Christ. We're listening to an apostle who was an eyewitness. So this is not just good advice, beloved. This is a binding to all our conscience because it comes through the apostle of Jesus Christ. This is apostolic authority. But why else should we listen to Peter? Well, because when we listen to Peter, we're also listening to a fellow pilgrim, not some super Christian. I think that's the part we can all really relate to Peter, and we're glad there is a Peter in the New Testament, aren't we? Yes. Peter is not only the man who experienced what we've said, but he was a man with enough faith to try and walk on water when he saw Christ do it and then sink <laughs> and say what? What we say very often, Lord, I perish. <laughs> Get me out of this. And so that's who we're listening to. Yeah, we're listening to a man who, who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and, and then was told by Jesus, Satan, get behind me, because <laughs> you, the rock, have become a stumbling stone, you see. Yeah, when, when, we, when we're listening to Peter, we're listening to a man that said uh, he would never uh, let anything happen to Jesus, and then he couldn't, couldn't stay awake for one hour praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's a man who said, I will never deny you, and then denied Jesus three times in one night in his hearing and then warned himself by the fire of his enemies. Yeah, and that's who Peter is too, you see. And then we know Peter is the man who was, like us, lovingly restored after his failures, given three opportunities to make right his three rejections when Jesus served him a fish breakfast on the beach and then sat down with him personally and said three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. That's Peter too. So when we read Peter and we go through 1 Peter here, we're hearing apostolic authority, but we're also listening to a man who, was, who had profound personal failures and weaknesses just like you and me. He is a fellow pilgrim who not only witnessed the sufferings of Christ, but went through, shared in the sufferings of Christ. And he is a man, though he was different from us in all those other ways. We're not eyewitnesses of sufferings or resurrection. We are not apostles with a capital A. But like Peter, and like us, back then he was still looking forward. Chapter 5, verse 1 he describes himself as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as, here it is, a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He is our fellow partaker and he was still waiting for it. He was in the furnace, like you and me, waiting for that day of revelation. So you're not listening to a superman when Peter writes. You're listening to a man who sunk very low, but somehow 
was back on his feet, restored, moving forward. That's the man in the moment. And now here's the message. What is the main overall message of First Peter? It's there written down for you. What he says to us is that Christians can live holy and impactful lives in a hostile world by the sustaining power of hope, this living hope, which he speaks of in chapter 1, the glory to be revealed at the second coming. Christians can live holy and impactful lives in a hostile world. Even now, how? By the sustaining power of hope. Hope. And we're going to go into that more in the next two, uh, two weeks from now when you look at verse 3 and on. But remember just this much that certain hope is not, Christian hope is not, I, 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 I hope something takes place. Remember, Christian hope is certain, just not consummated. It is certain that there's an inheritance that lies ahead for you. It is certain that you will be revealed with Him in glory and share in it. It is certain that there's a resurrection from the dead. It's just not consummated yet. And so it is that certain hope, Peter will say over and over, that keeps people walking forward through the furnace. That's the message. The purpose of it, well, would be obvious. Why would he write such a thing? It would be to encourage believers to stand firm. He says that directly. Chapter 5 Verse 9, resist him, that is the devil, firm in your faith. That's the purpose for you and I to be able to stand firm, to cling to our Christian convictions about our identity, about what human beings are. To, to stand firm in those convictions, regardless of where the society is spinning or heading. There's nothing new under the sun. Stand firm, and another purpose of this book would be not only to be there sort of gritting your teeth in the furnace, but think of this, that God's grace and the power of His gospel and His Holy Spirit can not only help you stand firm, but as He says in verse 8 of chapter 1, you can believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory even in the midst of it. That's tremendous, but that's what Peter believes God can do, and that's why we hope God will do with us. And this is fulfilled. How? How is this supported, this message? It begins again, I mentioned again, with their identity. They needed to remember who they are in Christ, and Peter doesn't waste a word. He jumps right into it. You are elect exiles, he says right away. Who starts a letter like that? Uh, to Jimmy, elect exile. <laughs> No one starts letters like that, but Peter does. Why? Because he wants to dive immediately into that which he thinks is going to buttress their hope. Yes, you're exiles. Yes, you're strangers in this world. I get it. But you are chosen strangers, he says. Elect exiles. What's that mean? Well, let's start with exiles. Let's start with that and look at the adjective elect lastly and we'll finish our time. You are exiles. That's a central principle in this whole, in this whole book. The American Standard, I believe, translates it, those who reside as aliens. Exiles reside as aliens. This word's only used two other times in the New Testament. The second time is right here in 1 Peter in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, pilgrims, 
and exiles. Exiles, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And the only other place that word is used is used in the book of Hebrews in that great chapter of the, of the heroes of faith, chapter 11. It was used of Abraham, and it says that Abraham and all those before him, beginning with Noah, all the way back, he says that they were all sojourners and exiles. And that's interesting because the language of exile most typically is thought of as the experience of Israel uh, in the, as Assyrian uh, uh, captivity and in the Babylonian captivity. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that those were historical, political exiles. He's saying the people of God from the very beginning, from Noah and Abraham, they have always been, what, sojourners and exiles. No matter where we live, no matter when we live, we are always sojourners and exiles because our heading, our true north, is returning to the glory of Eden and the new heavens and the new earth. The promised land. That's what you're identified as. You are an exile. The word is a really complicated term uh, in, in, uh, in the Greek language. It described a very specific legal status in the Greco-Roman society and about the closest way of describing it today would be resident aliens. We use that language here in the United States, resident aliens. Uh, until I became an American citizen, which di didn't happen when I was young, I had a green card and it said I was a resident alien. <laughs> you're resident, which means what? It means you live here, but you're an alien. It means you don't quite look like you came from here. <laughs> you don't quite look like you belong here. You're a resident, yes, but you're alien. God's people have always been that. Pilgrims, sojourners. Because this is not about the, the nation you live in. It's not about the political structure that you live under. You are a sojourner, whether you're an American Christian and have always lived your whole country, or you're a sojourner if you live in a, in a Muslim nation under a dictator somewhere or under communism, and you're a Christian, then you have always been a sojourner, a, a, an exile, an alien, because this is not about political structures. This is a spiritual concept. This is about being born again into a spiritual life surrounded by people who continue to be fallen. And so it's possessing the new understanding of the truth surrounded by people who have distorted it and twisted. And so there always should be a, a degree of which your values, your, your, your values, your decisions, your anastrophe, your way of life stands out as being different because you don't belong to this world. I didn't just say you don't belong living where you are. I said you don't belong to the world, meaning in its way of thinking. I quote Jesus again, this time from his high priestly prayer of John 17. He says this to the, speaking to the Father in prayer about the disciples. Listen carefully, verse 14. I have given them your word. Glorious, huh? The gospel. I have given them your word. Father, the Son, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. 
right away. And the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world. Now that they have the word, see? Just as I am not of the world. So what should we do? Hide in caves in the mountains? He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, implied in the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Anybody ever said that to you? What world are you from? <laughs> the King James uses a, a word there in chapter 2 saying that you are a peculiar people, says the King James. Now we tend to think peculiar means strange. It, well, to the world it might mean that. Strange the way you use your money. Strange the way you don't jump into the things we've been doing. Strange the way you stand up for such a thing and refuse to go with the flow. Peculiar you are in your practices. Peculiar you are in, in what you do with your spare time and how you rear your children. Peculiar you are in how you view sexuality. Well, that's, the, that's as it should be. Distinct lives. Different, stand out. On, on, on the cultural level, not on the spiritual level, have you ever stood out like you travel somewhere and you got there and when you realize everyone's looking at you and you thought, okay, I, I'm not from here and I think everyone knows? <laughs> that happens, that happens. I've traveled a lot of places in the world and even where my dad came from in Italy, it was still like that because it was just so different from living here our whole lives and my dad being originally from Italy and it was so different that I have so many stories. Here, one of them is we went back and we're walking my, my dad's old land and he was walking with my uncle there and my dad saw the fig tree and the old fig tree there. He loves figs. He grabbed a fig and started eating and my uncle says, what are you doing? He says, what do you mean I'm doing? I'm eating a fig. He says, it's two o'clock. No one eats figs at two o'clock. <laughs> It was like, it's, Italy's filled with food laws. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> no one drinks coffee like that. No one does this. My mom went there one time. She ordered espresso, and she ordered a gelato. And, and, and the waiter said, where's the other person? And she said, there's nobody. I want it. She goes, you don't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> you see? I mean, you walk around, and you immediately stand out as you don't belong. You know, you're not from here, are you? Well, that's just on a cultural level, but what's happening now, and it should, and it better really happen that people view your way of life, your outlook, decisions you make, what you're doing, your plans, speech, etc., and they need to see something peculiar about it. Because if you're a Christian, you're not of this world. And the world is moving further and further away from Judeo-Christian basics. You're an exile. But lastly, you are an elect exile. And we'll get more into that next week, but I want to say enough this morning to minister to you. You are an elect exile. In the Greek language, nouns, you know, the subject, an adjective, a verb, and the object, they can go in any order in New Testament Greek. Because what says it's the subject or what says it's the object is the 
is the uh, prefixes and suffixes. So if you want to make an emphasis in New Testament Greek, what you do is you, word, you move the word you want to emphasize up in the order of the sentence. So a sentence could begin with a verb or an object or an adjective or whatever you see. It's, it's not subject, verb, object in, in Greek. Some of you look at me like you never studied grammar. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, that's our education, I guess. So, so what I'm trying to say is that Peter moved the word elect all the way, even though it's an adjective, he moved it all the way up right in the beginning of the sentence, the way the New Testament Greek reads here, and it's only one word that's translated to the elect. And so it reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect ones, exiles of the dispersion. He wants to get right away into this idea of the value of their identity in Christ. Though they are strangers in this world, you are God's strangers in this world. You are the elect strangers. You are the chosen strangers. Emphasize that. Emphasize God's election, not human rejection. In your conscience, when you're in the furnace, that's what he is getting at there. Now we'll get into election more next week as we work it out in verse 2 and so forth. I would just say that every Christian believes in the doctrine of election because it's mentioned everywhere, but sincere Christians disagree what election means and how it happens. So what I'm explaining is our position here. Election is this. It is God's Choice of individuals. We might add loving, free, unconditioned. Choice of individuals to receive His favor, His grace, before they have done anything good or bad. Because His choice is free. It's unconditioned. And our nature is such we would never choose Him if He didn't choose us first. We love Him because He loved us First, and you'll find that in Romans chapter 9 there, and Paul explains it there very carefully. It's a hard thing to listen sometimes uh, if you've never studied this before, but he quotes Moses in the, the words of the Lord, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Election, therefore, is, is the free, loving choice of God to give his grace to people who are ill-deserving. Ill-deserving. And it is a very, very important concept to meditate. You're going to, to meditate upon. It is a Trinitarian work. Look at verse 2. I won't get into it. Just election to be in an exile is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Election happens in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's the application of it. Election is unto, here's the purpose, obedience to Jesus Christ and atonement, the sprinkling with His blood, you say. It is a glorious Trinitarian salvation, and election is at the heart of it. That is God's choice, you see. Now, we'll get into more of that next week, but this morning I just want you to see how this would buttress their hope as well as yours. Again, he wants to emphasize God's, God's election, not human rejection. 
Throughout the Bible, the word elect or chosen is a very intimate term most often used to speak, not of abstract, cold doctrine, but election or elect or chosen is the intimate term most often used to speak of those whom God loves, though they were ill-deserving. Abraham, a moon worshiper, was God's chosen one. Israel were God's chosen people. And why were they chosen? Because of God's free mercy and love and compassion. Uh, You hear that in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, as Moses writes Deuteronomy, and he reflects on the fact they're, they want, they're about to enter the promised land. And he says there, when you go into the, take possession of the promised land, you're going to need to live differently. You need to live holy, and you need to bring to an end the idolatry of what's happening in the promised land. Why? Here's why. Deuteronomy 7, 6, 4. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why would that be? Because they were so strong or so good looking or so good in their nature. He goes, no, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. So why did he do it? It was because the Lord loves you. He set his love on you because he loves you. <laughs> and leave it there. He loves you, not because he foresaw you would love him, because he loves you. He's free to show compassion upon whom he shows compassion. In one sense, that doctrine is designed to really humble us, and we'll look at that next week, but it's also in this context is designed to do one is to remind them of their identity that they are chosen before they are exiles. And that everything that was happening in their lives as strangers living in this world like pilgrims was part of God's plan from the very beginning. It's as if, it's as if through Peter, the Lord is saying through Peter, you aren't a stranger, an alien that doesn't fit in, uh, rejected because you failed in any way or failed me in any way. You know why you're an alien? Because you belong to me. That's why I chose you before the foundation of the world to be mine because I love you and because you belong to me and the world hates me. Guess what? The world hates you. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world because you are mine. Nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing in this life or the next will ever take away that glorious inheritance that I promised lies ahead for you in the true promised land. Why? Because I love you. That's why. So stay true in the furnace. And that's what people, Peter wants them and you and me to, to let sink in. Sink in this morning and in the, in the weeks to come. This is the reason you're a stranger in a strange new world. Because he chose you out from the world. And he made you his own. And the world doesn't like him. And so it doesn't like you. Not fitting in. 
not being accepted, being ridiculed, losing your job, um, being a stranger, it hurts. It hurts. And for some of you, it's getting hard or it's been hard. You're already feeling the heat, feeling crushed. But the, the furnace is temporary. And the love of God that sustains you through it is, is eternal, is forever. Has anyone ever thought that you are a stranger? The way you think, the way you live, how odd, how different. I hope so. If not, why not? He'll help us through all this as we make our way through, through the book. Let's pray and come to the Lord's table together. Mm-hmm.